California Dreaming Podcast discusses a variety of topics with details that may contain acts of violence, explicit language, and mature content not suitable for children. Listener discretion is advised. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know by now that there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching. And you're going to want a web page that's simple and easy to work with. That's why I use Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it doesn't get any easier than this. If you host a show or you're thinking about starting one, Come visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over and you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're new to this, they can get your show up and running for you. And with a free month to try it out using promo code dream, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups. You can leave the show a rating and review on iTunes or whichever platform you use to listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can support the show on our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. If you're not interested in a monthly donation, you can help with a one-time donation through our show's PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going and keeping us ad-free, so thank you. Before we move forward, I want to let you know that this is probably going to be at least two, possibly three parts, but they will be released in close succession, so you won't have to wait long if you want to binge them all at one time. But in order to record everything, I'm going to need a few more days, so I'll be breaking this up into parts. Because this case has a tremendous amount of details and it's a very important story. On February 10th, 2004, Kevin Cooper was scheduled to be put to death by lethal injection in California's death chamber in San Quentin State Prison. At the time, he was 46 years old and had been in prison for more than 20 years and was slated to become the 11th man executed in California since the death penalty was reestablished in 1978. Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger refused to order a stay for what would become the first execution of his term, citing overwhelming evidence of Kevin's guilt. But the Ninth Circuit Federal Appeals Court intervened and ordered Kevin's execution to be stayed, three hours and 42 minutes before the state of California was set to end his life. Three hours and 42 minutes. 
And just a few hours later, the United States Supreme Court refused to overturn the federal appeals court's decision, marking the first time in a long time that the country's highest court agreed with an execution stay in California. As it stands now, nobody in California's death row is going to be executed anytime soon, if ever again. As a matter of fact, even though it is still on the books and defendants can still be sentenced to death, the death chamber has essentially been decommissioned and dismantled as of this year. So Kevin Cooper, along with more than 700 men and women currently living on death row, all have a reprieve for now. So dreamers, how and why is it that Kevin Cooper is still alive today? How did he manage to dodge death? Well, the answer is, is that he has a lot of supporters. And I'm just not talking about regular old picketers. He has some big names backing him. Celebrities like Sean Penn, Danny Glover, Janine Garofalo, Angela Davis, Kim Kardashian, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, and even the Pope. There are dozens of politicians and countless everyday people pulling for Kevin. And it's not just because they are anti-death penalty advocates. That's not the issue here. They are pulling for Kevin because he is innocent. And this might be somewhat of a departure for me. I'm usually on the fence about uncertain cases. I'll admit it. I'm undecided on lots of cases, but I choose not to engage in debating one side or the other because people are going to think what they think, and I have little desire to try and change that. All I can do is give you the facts, maybe an opinion here or there, but I really don't want to try and convince anyone of anything. But not this time. If you know about Kevin Cooper's story and you think he's exactly where he deserves to be, then you might not want to listen to this. You might think that I'm being ignorant or biased. You might even get mad and stop listening altogether. But this case has me hot because Kevin Cooper is factually innocent. He's been convicted and sentenced to death for a crime I'm convinced that he did not commit. And the reasons this happened are crystal clear. He was a convenient suspect. Law enforcement, the media, and the public at large held a strong racial bias against him because he is black. And I am convinced for one of the first times in my life that police conspired to make Kevin Cooper fit the crime by not only ignoring solid critical proof that he did not do this, by not only destroying vital exculpatory evidence, but also by fabricating evidence by ways of lifting items that contained Kevin's DNA and planting those items at the crime scenes. And I'm going to break it all down for you here today in this 106th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the 11th Man, Part 1. In a rural area of Southern California known as Chino Hills, it is the backdrop of where our story begins. On the afternoon of Saturday, June 4, 1984, the Ryan family, consisting of Dad, Doug, Mom, Peggy, 
10-year-old daughter Jessica and 8-year-old son Josh, along with a neighbor friend of the kids, 11-year-old Christopher Hughes, had all gone together to a backyard barbecue at the home of family friend George Blade, located a few miles away from the Ryan's Chino Hills home in Los Serranos. The Ryans and Christopher departed from the Blade home and headed back to their home, where Christopher did have permission from his parents to stay for a sleepover. When they left that barbecue, that would be the last time that Christopher and the Ryan family, with the exception of Josh, would ever be seen alive again. The following morning, Christopher was expected home, though I am not clear how far away he lived, so I can't say for sure if he was going to get a ride from the Ryans or if he was going to walk home. But either way, he failed to show up. His mom, Mary, began wondering where her son was and attempted to call the Ryan residence. However, all she got was a busy signal. And if you remember back in the old days of landline telephones, If the receiver was off the hook, or if someone was on the phone, the caller would hear a beeping sound that indicated as such. Mary called several times but still was unable to get through, so she decided to go over there shortly after 9 in the morning. She looked around and knocked on the door but still received no answer. She went back home and told her husband, William, that something wasn't right at the Ryan home. It was eerily quiet. But William wasn't initially all that concerned. Mary went back over to the Ryan home for a second time and continued to be troubled by the fact that the house was so quiet. Three kids on a Sunday morning. This was alarming and she really began to worry. She went back home and told William again, something is wrong. So at his wife's urging, William made his way over to the Ryan home to check things out for himself. When William got there, he took note that the family truck was in the driveway, but their 1977 Buick station wagon was not present. He tried the front door, but it was locked, which would not be the norm if the family were at home. Even if Williams's initial thought was that everyone had gone out for breakfast or something like that, he decided to keep looking just in case because Christopher was supposed to come home and it was likely a courtesy call would have been made if they were planning on taking the kids out to eat before sending him home. Those days you had to since we didn't have cell phones. We'd call our parents from our friend's house to give them a heads up or to ask for permission before we'd actually go and do whatever it was we wanted to do. Because once we left, there would be no way of our parents getting in touch with us, right? So William walked around the outside of the house and tried to get a glimpse of the inside. When he got to the backyard, he was able to peer through a sliding glass door that led to the master bedroom. And that is when the massacre inside was discovered. He saw Doug, Peggy, Josh, and his son, Chris, lying on the floor in pools of blood. William could see Josh lying in between Peggy and his son, and it appeared that Josh was alive. 
William attempted to get through the sliding glass door, but he was unable to open it, so he ran around the side of the house where he knew there was a door that led to the kitchen. And that door he was able to kick in, and he went inside. As William made his way down the hall towards the master bedroom, that is when he also saw Jessica, also on the floor, not moving, in a pool of blood in the hallway. He went into the bedroom, and he kneeled down and placed his hand on his son, and he was cold to the touch. He turned his attention to Josh, the only one still alive, and asked, Who did this? Josh was unable to answer as his throat had been slit. He tried to speak, but couldn't. Just some unintelligible noises emerged from the young boy. William picked up the phone and tried to call 911, but the phone wasn't working. He next drove over to a neighbor's house, and police were phoned from there. They were told that four people were dead, and one child was still alive. Law enforcement quickly arrived at the scene. Doug, Peggy, and Chris were pronounced dead in the master bedroom, and Jessica in the hallway just outside the master bedroom. Josh, having gone into shock, was airlifted to Loma Linda University Hospital, and he would go on to survive. Doug Ryan had sustained 37 individual wounds. Peggy had no less than 21 wounds, possibly more. I read conflicting reports about her. Jessica had 46, and Christopher had 26. Josh had significantly less wounds than the others, and the wounds had been inflicted by at least three different weapons. I'll give you a breakdown of their wounds. Doug, who was 41 at the time of his death, suffered 37 wounds caused by both a hatchet and a knife, and he also suffered a severed finger, likely a defensive wound. Peggy, also 41 at the time of her death, had at least 17 hatchet or axe wounds to her face and head and four stab wounds caused by a knife into her chest. Jessica, who was 10 when she died, suffered 46 stab and hatchet or axe wounds, as well as additional wounds caused by either an ice pick or a screwdriver. Christopher had 26 stab and hatchet or axe wounds, as well as several skull fractures and a severed finger as well. Josh, who was 8, survived a hatchet blow to the head, stab wounds to his back either caused by an ice pick or a screwdriver, which punctured his lung and broke three ribs, and his throat was slashed with a knife. The deceased victims still had food in their stomachs at the time of their deaths, which meant they were killed in under three hours or so since the last time they had eaten, most likely at the barbecue they had just come back from. The medical examiner opined that the injuries could have been inflicted upon each of the five victims within one minute of each other. So a rough estimate, dreamers. That's somewhere in the ballpark of 150 or so stab, slash, hatchet, and blunt force injuries inflicted on five people, three children, and two adults. Athletic adults, mind you. And Dad had been a military police officer in the Marines. 150, give or take, 
individual injuries. Five people. And there were guns in the house that belonged to the Ryans, yet no one had been able to access any of them, some within arm's reach of where the victims lay dead. Remember these details and these numbers, dreamers, because this event was violent. It was ferocious. It was a massacre. Josh Ryan would live to tell what he could about what happened that night. He was alerted to something gone awry when he heard a scream, though he could not be sure who screamed, but he thought maybe that it was his mom. Someone had entered into the home and began attacking the Ryans in the master bedroom. Josh next heard Christopher crying for help, but he would be attacked as well. And Josh's memory of that night would shift over time, and we'll go over that in a little bit. But for now, the pressure was coming down hard on the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department to get this case solved and to get it solved quickly. You've literally got the boogeyman out there breaking into your home as you're getting ready for bed or already in bed and had not a moment of hesitation to slash, stab, and hatchet four people to death, almost a fifth, and three of them being children. The community was gripped with fear and the public was demanding an arrest quickly. This was a lovely neighborhood tucked among some rolling hills, and these were horse properties. For the Ryan family, horses were a passion. They raised Arabians. A crime like this is unheard of in their neighborhood. In Dreamers, I would argue the brutal slashing and stabbing of an entire family plus one is unheard of everywhere, no matter the neighborhood. No neighborhood, rich or poor, upper, middle, or lower, none of them are subject to being thought of as a place something like this could ever happen. But you better believe when it does happen in your town, law enforcement is definitely going to be feeling it. The initial thought was that these killings were committed by more than one person, and that was the word going around town based on the number of weapons that were used at the time, which was at least three. That was how many people must have taken part in this. Three people went into a killing frenzy. There was also information for witnesses that three men were seen at the Ryan residence that day, that they were looking for work, perhaps help with the ranch, the stables, the horses, and the like, and those three men were described as Hispanic. The investigation of the scene back then in 1983 was only going to tell investigators so much because examination of the blood, all the splatter, smears, cast-off, DNA, things like that, the way that they are looked at, interpreted, tested, and preserved today simply wasn't a thing back then. And the sheriff's department investigating the killing didn't seem to want or care to consider what may or may not be valuable to preserve for possible future examination. Because I'm pretty sure they were going to find a way to mark this case as solved as quickly as possible, no matter what it was going to take. Later on, information would come out that they allowed more than 70 people to come in and out of the crime scene. And before long, the crime scene was dismantled and taken apart 
and stored in a facility that was not climate controlled, thereby destroying much of what there could have been to be interpreted at a later time. There also didn't seem to be all that much in the way of evidence left behind by whoever did this to the Ryans and Christopher, nor was there anything stolen from the home either. Nothing was missing. Money was still visible on the counter. Nothing valuable was taken except for four lives. But from outside, the family station wagon was taken. They apparently kept their keys in the car. You know, those were the times that we once lived in, right? I'm fairly certain it was a pretty common thing back then, especially in rural areas. And this was a big old clunky station wagon. Hardly a highly sought after vehicle for the typical car thief, but it was taken seemingly for necessity, not because this was an awesome car. Someone needed to get somewhere and this was a convenient ride. Now, if the car was unlocked and the keys were inside, why then would the would-be car thieves feel it necessary to go into the home and kill everybody first and then take the car? Well, likely because this car, when you start it up, it's going to have a loud engine that roars when it's turned on, and when it's being driven away, it would likely have caught the attention of the Ryans inside. At least, that's one explanation. And the area is rural. The time of night, well, since they still had food in their stomachs and they had left that barbecue between 9 or 9.30 that evening and they were stiff and cold to the touch by 9 the next morning, it seems that they were likely killed not too long after they arrived home within a couple of hours of having gone to bed. And while it can never be clear what exactly occurred and when, whether or not they were asleep really can't be ascertained, but it was likely that they were. Either way, it seems that the adults were attacked first, and the children became alerted to the chaos and began coming into the room. First the boys and Jessica last, which is why she was found in the hallway. Anyway, at the time that they were killed, it would have been very quiet in the neighborhood, and a large station wagon being started would be heard. And at least one witness, possibly two, said that they saw the station wagon leaving the Ryan home that evening, and there were three, possibly four, white or Hispanic men in the car. And remember that fact. And also remember that there was nothing stolen from the home. Absolutely nothing. Joshua Ryan's life was hanging on by a thread by the time he reached the hospital that day. Mary Howell, Josh's grandmother, his mom's mom, made her way there to be with him and to watch over him. By the time she had got there, he had already been patched up, bandages around his head and his neck, but he was still unable to articulate any words. He had a paper and a pencil, and he wrote to her, How are mom and dad? The devastating task of breaking the news to her grandson that he was all that was left fell upon her shoulders. And she didn't even attempt to beat around the bush or deflect the question. She told him they're gone, along with his sister and his friend. Tears streamed down his cheeks as his first thoughts were, 
What am I still doing here? All she could do was anything and everything she could to stifle her own tears so she could be the rock that she knew Josh was going to need from that day forward for the rest of his life for as long as she could. Mary cried quietly and alone and to herself just so that she could be everything she needed to be because now it was only going to be them. Mary became Josh's entire family. She would be the one to finish raising him, to see him into adulthood. And the search was on, and it was a multi-county effort. And initially, the thought was that there were three white or Hispanic killers, and this information was not only based on the multiple weapons used to kill Doug, Peggy, Jessica, and Christopher, and almost killed Josh, but also the fact that neighbors had seen three men at the house earlier that day and witnesses also saw the Ryan station wagon being driven away from the home with three men inside. But also because of what Josh himself was able to relay to detectives from his hospital bed. Because Josh was still unable to speak, one of the first detectives who had gone to see him gave him instructions as to how they were going to speak to one another. I'm going to ask you some questions. If the answer is yes, squeeze my hand. If your answer is no, don't squeeze my hand. Josh did his best to answer the detective's questions using this means of communication. The detective wanted to know this. How many people broke into your house and attacked you, your family, and your friend? I'm going to start counting, and when I get to the number of people you saw committing this attack, squeeze. And he counted. One, two, three. And that's when Joshua squeezed his hand. Three. Josh also indicated with hand squeezes while answering the questions regarding the race of the people inside that they were either white or Hispanic. Of that, he was clear. Remember this too, dreamers, because I'm going to say this right now. I believe 1,000% that what Josh Ryan communicated to that detective from his hospital bed via squeezing the detective's hand was absolutely correct. He had also indicated the same information to a counselor that spoke to him in the hospital as well. Three men, white or Hispanic. And of this, I have no doubt he knew what he was talking about. But something happened that changed the course of the investigation into the murders of the Ryan family and Christopher Hughes. A few days after the killings, investigators received some information regarding an escaped convict, Kevin Cooper. According to court documents, Kevin had been incarcerated at the California Institution for Men, or CIM, located in Chino, California and he had been there on a robbery charge since April 29, 1983. On June 1st, Kevin had been relocated to the minimum security section of the prison, and then on the following day, June 2nd, Kevin escaped from the prison through a hole in the fence on foot. This was two days before the killings. Investigators were made aware that a home that was suspected to have been the hideout of the escaped convict happened to be the Ryan's 
closest neighbors. Kevin had sought refuge in a nearby house that apparently had been vacated or was in the process of being vacated. The home was owned by three individuals, Larry Lease and brothers Roger and Kermit Lang, and it was an apparent investment property that was rented out to tenants. From this point forward, we are going to refer to this property as the Lease Lang Home. It was situated down the hill approximately 125 yards or 115 meters or so away from the Ryan home, and it was the closest neighboring home to the Ryans. And fingerprints definitively placed Kevin Cooper inside this home. So there's no disputing Kevin was indeed, for a period of time, for about two days or so, in close proximity to the Ryan home at the time of the killings. He had been sleeping inside a closet of a bedroom adjacent to the garage. And the reason why he was sleeping in the closet was because there was a window that gave the outside a clear view of inside the bedroom and he did not want to be seen. And this window in the Lee Slang home had a direct view of the Ryan home. The home had been recently occupied by a woman named Kathleen Bilbia who was an employee of Larry Lee's, one of the homeowners. How long she had been living there is unclear, but what is known is that during the month of May, leading up to Kevin's escape and the killings of the Ryans and Christopher, Kathleen had been in the process of moving out of the home, and it is also known that the bedroom Kevin had been hiding in was her bedroom, and we will be referring to this bedroom as Kathleen's bedroom. By the 27th of May, approximately eight to nine days before the killings, most of Kathleen's things had been removed from the home. On two occasions, once on May 30th and again on June 1st, Kathleen had returned to the home at which time she ran the vacuum, cleaned up various areas of the home, including the bathroom and the shower and the toilet that was located in her bedroom. Despite the fact that the home was being vacated, it still had an active landline phone. A check of the phone records revealed that there were four phone calls made from the Lee Slang house after Kathleen had been there to do some cleaning during a time that she confirmed that she was not present in the home. Two of the calls were made to a number belonging to a woman named Yolanda Jackson who resided in the Los Angeles area. The first call made was in the early morning hours of Friday, June 3rd at 12.17 a.m., and that call lasted for one hour and ten minutes. That call terminated at 1.27 a.m. One hour and nine minutes later at 12.26 a.m., a second phone call was made to Yolanda, this one lasting only four minutes, terminating at 2.30 a.m. The third and fourth calls were made to a Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area number of a woman named Diane Williams. The first one was made later that same day, Friday, June 3rd, at 11.46 a.m., which lasted three minutes and terminated at 11.49 a.m. The same number was called the following day, Saturday, June 4th, at 7.53 p.m. and lasted 34 minutes, terminating at 8.27 p.m. 
This would place Kevin Cooper still inside the Lee Slang home approximately one hour prior to the Ryans and Chris Hughes having left the Blades barbecue that same evening. According to later testimony by Yolanda, she visited Kevin at the California Institute for Men on May 30th. A few days later, she got that phone call from Kevin shortly after midnight and he told her that he walked out of the prison and asked her for help, but she got the impression that he was kind of joking around. She would end up refusing to help him. He asked her where she thought he should go and she said that she had no idea and there was a point where he said he was getting up to get a cigarette. She said sometime after they hung up, he called back again and that call was brief and her story was backed up by phone records. As for Diane Williams, she reported too that she received two phone calls from Kevin in June and that he told her that he was released from prison early as a result of a new law that had been passed and he was in need of some financial help. She told him that she was unable to help him, at least not at the moment. Kevin told her that he would call back at a later time, which he did. On June 4th, the final call that was made from the Lee Slang home in the hours leading up to the killings. And in that call, Kevin asked if she had been able to get any money, which she again told him she was unable to help. Two days later, on Monday, June 6th, Diane Williams reported that she received the collect call from Kevin originating in Tijuana, Mexico. On Saturday, June 4th, at approximately 10 or 11 in the morning, a relative of the owner of the Lee Slang house, Virginia Lang, stopped by to pick up a sweater. It was not apparent to her that anything was out of place, though she was not the primary resident of the home at the time. It is likely that Kevin Cooper was inside the home, quietly hiding, as Virginia Lang came in, retrieved her sweater, and left again. The Lee Slang home was subsequently searched once it was discovered to have been disturbed in the time since Kathleen vacated it. The search yielded some evidence that some sort of cleanup effort related to the killings may have taken place inside Kathleen's bedroom and bathroom. Discovered on the carpet in her bedroom was one green button that was consistent with buttons found on jackets issued to inmates at the California Institute for Men. And Kevin was known to have one of these jackets during the time of his escape. But this button was stained with blood, and while it could not be tied to one person specifically, it could not be ruled out as having come from Kevin or one of the victims. Also found on the floor of the closet was a blood-stained rope, which was similar but not exactly the same as a section of blood-stained rope that they found in the driveway of the Ryan's home. The Lee Slang home was sprayed with luminol, and in Kathleen's bedroom and in the shower, luminol fluoresced about two to five feet above the floor of the shower walls. A footprint believed to belong to Kevin was found on the sill of the same shower. Luminol also fluoresced in places on the rug in the hallway, and it looked like they were shaped like footprints. And other areas in the bedroom closet and the sink also fluoresced. 
However, all this could tell investigators that it could have been blood as it is a known fact that certain cleaners and bleaches can also luminesce when sprayed with luminol. But there is a second test that can be conducted to determine whether it's blood or bleach. But that second test was never done. Remember, there is no denying that Kevin Cooper was in this house. But so was Kathleen. Cleaning. And she specifically said she cleaned the bathroom. Could she have used bleach on the shower and in the sink? Sure she could have. Investigators also recovered some hair in Kathleen's bathroom sink drain, and it looked as though it had been there for quite some time because it was dirty and matted, you know, that stuff you pull out of a drain. They also found other hairs that were not there for that long, and when those were examined, one of the hairs appeared that it could have come from victim Jessica Ryan, and one hair found in the bathroom shower also appeared as though it could have come from Doug Ryan. But remember, dreamers, at that time, hair analysis could only tell investigators so much that the hairs were possibly similar. There is no way to say with 100% certainty that those hairs came from either Jessica or Doug. On the afternoon of Sunday, June 5th, the same day as the discovery of the murders, a local resident found a hatchet in some overgrown grass on the roadside that led away from the Ryan home. A nearby fence post right next to the hatchet had an indentation that looked as though it had been struck with a sharp object. The hatchet was examined and it was revealed that it was covered in dried blood and human hairs and later was determined to be similar to both Doug and Jessica though again not definitively identified as theirs. The blood on the hatchet could not be ruled out as having come from possibly Joshua. The medical examiner determined that the hatchet was consistent with the instrument used to inflict the chopping wounds on all of the victims that he examined. Now, dreamers, I do strongly believe that this hatchet was used in the killings. I'm convinced of that and it was tossed out of the Ryan's vehicle as it was being driven away from the scene. And when it was tossed, it struck that fence post landing in the overgrown grass. But people started coming forward and saying that the hatchet came from the Lee Slang house, and that it was believed that it was missing from the residence, that it was normally kept in a sheath by the fireplace in the home. Kathleen said she saw it by the fireplace while she was there tidying up the house. Two days after the hatchet was discovered, on Tuesday, June 7th, the sheath for the missing hatchet was found on Kathleen's bedroom floor, the room where Kevin had been hiding. She said it was not there when she was last in the room, and for some reason the initial search of the house didn't turn up the sheath either. It showed up a couple days later. Also reported missing from the Lee Slang home were some buck knives and either one or two ice picks. And the medical examiner indicated that either of those items could have caused the other stabbing and cutting injuries on the victims. A strap for one of the missing buck knives was also later found on Kathleen's vacated bedroom floor. Again, not found in the initial search of the house. 
Another item that was found along the road leading away from the Ryan's home was a tan t-shirt that had been splattered in blood, and it was a piece of evidence that was presented at trial. There was also reportedly a blue t-shirt found, but this item was either thrown away or lost and was never subjected to any testing. I will go over the tan t-shirt a little bit later on as well. According to court documents, three shoe impressions were discovered that are believed to be tied to Kevin Cooper. There was a partial sole impression on a spa cover outside the Ryan's master bedroom, a partial bloody shoe print on a sheet on the Ryan's bed, and a complete shoe impression in the game room of the Lee Slang home. All these shoe impressions looked as though they came from the same tennis shoes. But I will say this now, that the shoe impression on the spa cover and the shoe impression on the sheet were not discovered until later on also. Now, while Kevin was in jail, he was involved with the jail basketball team, and one of his teammates named James Taylor was tasked with issuing equipment and shoes to players. He indicated to investigators that he issued Kevin a pair of PF Flyer tennis shoes, but about three days before he was moved to minimum security, Kevin traded those shoes in for a pair of Pro-Ked tennis shoes, but James Taylor was unable to recall what shoe size he gave him. These shoes were made and distributed by StrideRite, and they sold Pro-Ked shoes to the state of California for use in prisons and jails, and all of them have the same sole pattern as far as the general manager of StrideRite knew. That particular pattern is not found on any other shoe, and that is to the best of his knowledge. According to court documents, the shoes were not sold at retail, only to state and federal government. But according to a documentary on this case and court documents, they are available for retail customers. I'll go into greater detail about that later on, too. The shoe impression from the Ryan House crime scene and the vacant Lee Slang House were sent to the San Bernardino Crime Lab for comparison. It was determined that the shoe impressions had similar tread patterns, that it was likely to be similar types of shoes that made each impression, and that it could have been made by the same shoe, that they were similar to the Pro-Ked shoe tread, and that they were about a size 9.5 or 10, which is the size that Kevin Cooper wears. But according to a 2014 study, around the world, the average man's shoe size is between 9 and 12. And in America, the average man's shoe size is 10 and a half. The technician who examined the shoe impression also believes that the shoes were almost brand new. All of the blood inside the Ryan home was tested and determined that it could have come from one or more of the victims of the attack, with one small exception. At the bottom of the hallway, near the baseboard, down the hallway away from the master bedroom, there was one tiny speck of blood, and it's not even visible in photographs taken of it. And it was collected and determined with the testing available at the time that that singular drop of blood did not come from any of the victims. But based on some of the enzymes examined, it was concluded that this tiny drop of blood could have come from Kevin. One of the enzymes they test for is called EAP, 
and the technician believed that the EAP of the blood drop was type B. When he later tested Kevin's blood, the technician also believed it was EAP type B, but later on he learned that Kevin's blood was EAP type RB, which is very rare. As a matter of fact, the lab technician had actually never seen EAP type RB previously. He looked again at his original testing of the blood droplet and was unable to conclude if it was EAP type B or RB. But this same lab technician would later on go to testify that when he tested the blood, the EAP type was Kevin's. Yep, you heard that right. The lab criminalist changed his findings to fit the narrative. When further testing was requested, there was not enough of the blood drop left to allow for any more testing. As for the blood on the rope found in Kathleen's bedroom closet, it was determined that the blood could have come from one of the victims, but it did not match Kevin's blood. The Ryan family station wagon was discovered abandoned six days after the murder on June 10, 1983 in a church parking lot in the city of Long Beach, California. This would be about 50 miles or 80 kilometers from the scene and about a two-hour drive from Mexico. One witness had come forward and said that he had placed a flyer on the windshield one day after the discovery of the bodies on Sunday, June 5th. Another witness had come forward and said that they saw the vehicle parked there on Tuesday the 7th. It was finally reported to police by an alert citizen on the 10th. The car was searched, and I will go into much more detail about this, but the initial search of the vehicle revealed that three of the seats were covered in bloodstains. Three seats. A second search of the vehicle, all of a sudden, turned up two cigarette butts, which were examined and determined to be issued only in prisons. They were hand-rolled using prison-issued papers called roll rides, and they contained tobacco also only issued to inmates. Remember that detail, dreamers. These cigarette butts appeared on the second search of the vehicle. The second search. The saliva on the cigarettes was tested at the time, but the results were inconclusive However, it was consistent with having come from a non-secretor, and Kevin Cooper was a non-secretor. And this isn't the last we are going to hear of these cigarettes. We will come back to them as we discuss the evidence in this case. So let's talk about Kevin making his way down to Mexico. He admitted to crashing at the Lee Lang house, but of course he denied having any involvement in the murders. It was just his bad luck that placed him there. He said he was making phone calls to try and get out of the area but was unable to get anyone to help him, so he claims that when it got dark on the evening of June 4, 1983, he hitchhiked to Mexico. And he did, in fact, check into a hotel in Tijuana, about 130 miles or 210 kilometers from Chino Hills the following day on June 5th at 4.30 in the afternoon. Four days later, on June 9th, he met and befriended an American couple, Owen and Angelica Handy, who were sailing around Ensenada, Mexico. Kevin introduced himself as Angel Jackson and that he was looking for work. 
The Handys agreed to provide him with a place to stay and food for help painting their boat, and eventually he joined them as a part of their crew as they continued to sail up and down the coast of Baja in California. After they spent two days painting the boat, they set sail, and this went on for seven weeks. It was then when a woman whose boat was docked near the Handys' boat in Santa Barbara, California, went and accused Kevin of raping her. When she went to report the crime, she saw Kevin's picture on a wanted poster and pointed him out as the man who raped her. As the Coast Guard, along with the local sheriffs, closed in on the Handys' boat to take Kevin into custody, he dove into the water and attempted to swim to shore, but he was quickly apprehended. And just a side note, Kevin was never charged or convicted of raping anybody. At Kevin's trial, Josh Ryan was not made to testify. Both sides agreed that his statements would be taped and played for the jury in court. Josh was interviewed in his home with his grandma by his side on December 9, 1984, a year and a half after the killings at which time he was questioned by both the prosecutor and the defense. An audio-taped interview conducted by his psychiatrist on December 1, 1983, six months after the killing, was also played. And in neither one of those tapes did Josh identify anyone as the killer. In his video statement, Josh said that before they went to the barbecue the afternoon of the murders, Three Mexican men came to their home looking for work, and they were people that he had never seen before. And then they left for the barbecue and returned later that night. He and his friend Christopher slept in his room in sleeping bags. His parents went to bed in their room, and Jessica went to sleep in her room. Josh indicated that he had woken up once sometime during the night but fell back to sleep. He was then later awakened a second time, this time by a scream. Josh said he then woke Christopher up and the two of them walked down the hallway, but they stopped near the laundry room. He remembered seeing his sister in the hallway too, and as he got closer to his mom and dad's room, he saw a shadow or something near the bathroom. And it was only one shadow, and it was dark, and he could not see who the shadow was or what the shadow was doing. The boys became scared. Josh said he began to look around, and the next thing he remembered was waking up with his parents lying on the ground next to him. In Josh's audio-taped interview with his psychiatrist, he said he heard his mom scream. And when he walked into the bedroom, he saw someone by the bed turning his back against him. And then he just saw his hair and his back. After his mom stopped screaming, he went into the laundry room and hid behind the door. Christopher went into his parents' bedroom and then he was gone. Josh then said he went into the bedroom and he knocked me out. He said he thought the person who hit him was a man because he didn't think a woman could do something like that. And in that audio tape, he remembered telling a sheriff's deputy that he saw three men, but later in the video, he said he saw only one shadow. So what is Kevin's defense? Plain and simple is that he didn't do it. Yes, he hid at the Lee Lang house. Yes, he slept in Kathleen's bedroom. But he did not go over to the Ryan's residence and murder anyone. 
After he failed to get help from Yvonne or Diane, the two women he had called while in hiding, he said he left the Ryan house on foot. He hitchhiked, he stole a purse, obtained some money that way, and he made his way into Mexico. And that's where he met up with the Handys. His attorney presented evidence that the crime had been committed by more than one individual by pointing out the variety of weapons, Josh's initial statements that there were three attackers, and the fact that blood was found on three seats in the family station wagon. Three individuals were also spotted driving in the family vehicle as well, leaving the area. The jury would end up siding with the prosecution, convicting Kevin Cooper of capital murder four times over. He was sentenced to death. At first glance, it might kind of sort of sound like Kevin Cooper may have actually had something to do with the quadruple murders at the Ryan home that summer evening more than 36 years ago. Let's go down the list of potentially damning facts. 1. Kevin Cooper was an escaped convict. 2. He was hiding out in a vacant home 125 yards away from the crime scene. 3. He had a pretty extensive criminal history going back to when he was a teenager, possibly even some violent crimes, including at least one accusation of rape. 4. Kevin has been described as a burglar by trade. That was his thing. He broke into houses and he stole stuff. 5. Shoe prints closely matched his shoes and size were found at the crime scene. 6. A single tiny droplet of blood that had been matched to his rare blood type was found down the hallway from the bedroom where the murders took place. And 7. Despite the fact that what Kevin Cooper looks like has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not he committed this crime, let's be realistic. Kevin's physical appearance played right into the narrative law enforcement was putting out there for the media. If there had been a casting call for prowling, crazed, axe murderer, bad guy that breaks into houses and slashes up entire families and children, Kevin would have been a shoo-in. Is that racist? Heck yeah it is. But that is exactly why what would go on to happen to Kevin Cooper happened. He fit the part of the story law enforcement and prosecutors were getting ready to present when it came to who murdered the Ryans and Christopher Hughes. He was exactly what they needed. So dreamers, that was it. That's what they had. Kevin Cooper was in the vicinity. There was a tiny speck of blood, nearly invisible, that may or may not have come from him. That's questionable. There are possibly two shoe prints that may or may not have been his. And breaking and entering was Kevin Cooper's favorite pastime. Now, do we want to talk about why this simply doesn't fly? Not only with me, but with many, many people who have looked into this case. Yes, we are definitely going to talk about this and we are going to talk about it a lot. But I am going to end this here now. But don't worry, all of these episodes are likely going to be published all at once in the California Dreaming feed, hopefully, so you won't have to wait long for the rest of the story. We will go over the troubling aspects of this case as it has been clearly laid out in one appellate judge's dissenting report. 
There is a great deal of legal jargon that I'm going to try to simplify as best as I can, but it's something that we need to read and we need to know about. And that will bring this 106th episode of California Dreaming to a close. I would like to encourage you to come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there that we discuss the cases we cover and we share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but any other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories. We also post about our pets. We post funny memes. Please come on over and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page, like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. You can also follow us on Twitter at California Pod and Instagram at California Dreaming Pod. And for this week's birthday shout outs, I would like to wish a happy birthday to Lacey R., Malene R., and Danielle, who celebrated their birthdays on September 11th, Brooke B. on the 12th, Karen A. L. and Gina B. on the 13th, Michelle G. and Tammy S., and Billy May on the 15th and Lynette C on the 19th of September California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an eclectic roster of shows with content including true crime history, sports entertainment gaming and social media So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts, as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. There are a couple of new California Dreaming designs. You can get coffee mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, all sorts of stuff to represent your favorite true crime podcast. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you so much for listening to this first part of The Tale of the Eleventh Man. Part two will be out shortly. I am your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>